Welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2 SER nationwide on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers and coming up on the program this week... It's really complicated and often uh, families have to get involved and make uh, decisions on behalf of their loved ones. So it is, um, it's a really stressful time, especially when there are siblings involved as well. More and more people are having to go into aged care when they have a sudden critical health event and their children or carers are faced with a lot of very momentous decisions in a very short time. Is the system deliberately complex in order to extract the maximum amount of money from us? New research aims to find out. Also on the program... I've been unable to secure alternative care for my kids. I'll probably be forced to take annual leave, sick leave or long service leave and carers leave to cover that period. Essential workers were supposed to be supported by the changes to childcare, but there are still a lot of people that are falling through the cracks. We take a look at why this is happening. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on On The Money. First, the ME Bank, started by a number of industry super funds, has been coming under some pressure from borrowers who've had their redraw facilities on their mortgages effectively cancelled. There was no warning of this, and at this difficult time, many people would be needing to access funds just to keep themselves afloat. The move may cause ME Bank some problems, and media speculation involving the super fund owners perhaps needing more cash due to calls on their funds as well could be having a compounding effect. I asked Paul Mazzola, lecturer in finance at the School of Business at the University of Wollongong, to explain how this had all come about. Yes, ME Bank uh, just recently, as you say, cancelled their customers' redraw facilities, and these were for loans that were made over five years ago, and they claimed these are legacy loans that had some terms and conditions that were inappropriate at the time because it could have placed their customers uh, in a position where they would borrow an amount greater than their original borrowing limit. Their reasons that they state that they didn't want to endanger their customers into incurring amounts of debt that could put them into some sort of trouble. But in fact, I think their reasons may also be driven by their intention to reduce their risks on their loan portfolio by reducing the amount that the borrowers can redraw obviously ensures that loan balances are kept at a minimum and that would curtail or at least restrict the probability of loan losses. Now, what is happening at the moment is that there is a great uncertainty in terms of the value of properties, property prices, and Uh, we are seeing ad hoc um, evidence that property prices are declining in certain areas. 
And of course, properties are security for these loans. So again, uh, given the um, increasing unemployment, the uh, reduction in property prices, this uh, all increases the probability of problem loans for ME Bank. And so this may well be a strategy of controlling their risk on their loan portfolio. But if you've borrowed from ME Bank with this redraw facility, you'd expect to be able to use it, wouldn't you? Absolutely. You go into a relationship with any service provider on a contract basis, and if those if that contract includes certain features of a product, you would expect that those features would survive for the lifetime of the product, in this case, the mortgage loan. But most banks, when it comes to redraw facilities, have hidden in the contract an ability to change or withdraw the redraw facility. Most banks actually have that. So perhaps from a legal standpoint, they have a right to cancel the redraw, but they've got some major or at least three major problems uh, where uh, they've actually um, contravened some uh, legislation contained in the National Credit Code. And this is something the Prudential Regulator will be looking at now. Is that what's happening? That's exactly right. APRA is looking into it, but more importantly, um, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority is investigating the matter. Now, the issue with that is that it could actually cost ME Bank millions of dollars because uh, banks are required to pay the costs of investigations and of any complaint resolutions uh, found by um, AFCA, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. So that's an authority that they should be very wary of, as well as their liabilities under the National Credit Code. The contravention under the National Credit Code relates to the requirement for banks to um, provide advance notice of 20 days before any variation to their terms and conditions of a product. Now, the evidence is uh, via all the press reports that customers were actually advised after the changes were affected by ME Bank. So there seems to be prima facie contravention of that code. That advance notice period is also contained in the Code of Banking Practice. So they may well find themselves in a bit of trouble. Now, I think... It wasn't any advance notice. It just it just happened, didn't it? And people tried to access their funds and then found that they couldn't. That's right. Now, the, the purpose of providing some advance notice is to give the customers an opportunity to rearrange their finances, which is only fair. So that seems to be one of the biggest complaints uh, by the customers. The um, ACTU and a number of the unions have also been concerned about this because ME Bank has, well, it it has exposure to a lot of super funds, which are from the unions, and it was set up at the union's behest. So could it be that with a, a lot of super funds also getting pressure from people wanting to withdraw funds, that they're needing to shore up their cash for that facility as well? Yes, look, that's uh, that's something that's been bandied around the media recently. Um, as you know, uh, ME Bank is actually owned by 26 uh, super funds. These are industry super funds and quite sizable super funds. 
And yes, there is a uh, um, a trend of uh, people withdrawing funds from the super funds, and that is testing the liquidity of these super funds. And although ME Bank does have exposure to these super funds, I don't believe that this is a run on um, ME Bank's liquidity by the super funds. Um, the uh, the bank recently came out um, uh, basically stating that they're uh, meeting the liquidity coverage ratio, which is a ratio imposed by APRA, the regulator. In fact, they go as far as saying that they've more than double the regulatory requirement. So there seems to be no issue with regards to ME Bank's liquidity. Even so, even if there was a tight liquidity position for ME Bank, the RBA is always there to provide liquidity support for um, licensed banks in Australia. So the, the old-fashioned idea of uh, a run on the bank causing it to collapse is not really in, in the scenario that we're talking about? No, I don't think so. I think we're far from it. I think this is just a blunder by ME Bank in the way they've communicated to their customers. And uh, unfortunately, they're going to suffer the reputation risk uh, associated with that blunder, it's apparently affected 20,000 customers. And that's, um, although it's a small percentage of their total total customer base and approximately around 4% of their total customers, it may well mean that some of these customers may refinance their mortgages with other banks. And uh, furthermore, it might um, make someone think twice before they bank with ME Bank in the future. Paul Mazzola, lecturer in finance at the School of Business at the University of Wollongong, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers and you're listening to On The Money throughout Australia on the Community Radio Network. I love listening to On The Money. New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian recently announced a $132 million childcare package. This was to go towards paying preschool fees for six months and paying childcare workers in council-run centres who are not eligible for the JobKeeper allowance. This should mean that people like Katrina will be able to keep her children in care. In this story from Lani Tyndale. Thanks to the government's $1.6 billion childcare rescue package. Childcare has been free. However... Loopholes in the package are causing the closure of family daycares and council-run centres, and not all parents and operators are happy with the new funding model. I spoke to Helen Hibbins from the United Workers' Union about the new rescue package. The way that it is funded now is that no parents will be charged any fees uh, and the centres will be given 50% of their usual budget from the federal government. Uh, and in order to get enough money to pay their workforce, they need to be eligible for JobKeeper as well. And the two things together make up a package that the sector can sort of make work. Um, the problem is where um, services aren't eligible for JobKeeper, then what they've got is 50% of their previous budget, but with no capacity anymore to charge parents. Uh, and that's really dire. And there's a number of places that are in that boat. Katrina Shaw works in the finance industry and is classified as an essential worker. Her two young children attend a council-run daycare centre in the western suburbs of Sydney. 
she was informed by Humberland Council that as of April 20th, the Children's Centre will be suspended. So I think the main thing for the um, council-run services is the fact that they don't have access to the job seeker payments. So the way that it's been explained to us in this letter is they've re- they're receiving 50% of revenue, but they need to cover 100% of their expenses. So it's not viable for them. What are you considering doing if you don't get childcare? Will you have to stop working? What What will happen? Yeah. So it's a bit of a contradiction given that the whole purpose of this package was to enable essential workers to work, but given the centre's closed and I've been unable to secure alternative care for my kids, I'll probably be forced to take annual leave, sick leave or long service leave and carers leave to cover that period in which the suspension of the childcare services continues. Another sector that is concerned about the child care rescue package is the family daycare sector. Little Oz Kids Family Daycare Scheme is a company that provides coordination support for around 35 family daycare operators across Sydney. I spoke to Manu Mumphrey, who is a supervisor, and Keisha Hape, who is a coordinator at the company. Every family daycare educator has their own set fee. Um, the government has brought in since Monday to pay each family daycare educator 50% of their maximum subsidy rate, which is for family daycare at the moment $11.10 per hour per child. That's what they were getting a day, and the parents were paying that gap. So if you halve that, that's $5.55 an hour. Each service um, charges a levy. Um, so our office charges $1.90 per hour, so then they need to then take that off their $5.55. So if you take that off, that's $3.65 an hour they're now getting paid. So our educators have to survive from now, Monday the 6th of April, until the 1st of May with their low income without the JobKeeper, and that's if they're even eligible for it or if they even receive it on the 1st of May. Family has offer flexible hours, and so a lot of parents that use family centres are essential workers. A typical centre will be between 7am to 6pm open, whereas family daycare can operate at any time. The payments that childcare operators will receive will be based on enrolment figures from the beginning of March. If operators want to access the job keeper payments, they have to have had a reduction in income of 30%. Some services have had enormous drops in attendance and enrolments and we've uh, heard a lot from those services who are really in crisis. The issue for centres that had pretty reasonable enrolments before the package was that they are now uh, in the same boat as everybody else, that they only get 50% of their previous budget from the federal government, but they may not be eligible for JobKeeper because in order to access JobKeeper, you have to be an eligible employer who has uh, had a significant downturn in your business. Another concern for the family daycare operators that we spoke to was that they're only being paid for children that were enrolled in their service at the beginning of March. So any children that were new or increased their days after that, they're not getting paid. And there is also no provision for the educators who were overseas or, you know, who were not working at that period of a time. That's right. So they are not getting paid nothing. We had some on annual leave, some on sick leave. 
some um, their bookings were low because it just finished school holidays. So they, some of them are getting paid zero right now, even though they're looking after children every day. And are they, so you have some people who have closed their service and others are working for free, is that right? Pretty much. Look, our educators have a close relationship with their families, so they they didn't want to close because these parents needed the care. They're still working. So they were like, what can I do? I can't close. My families need me, so they're staying open. Last Friday, the Minister for Education, Dan Tien, told 2GB's Ray Hadley that he's working hard to plug the holes in this rescue package. The government has indicated they'll go back to the old funding model once the COVID-19 pandemic is over. Helen Evans from the United Workers' Union says that this period is an opportunity to reassess funding for the childcare industry. It's also going to be really interesting to see how the sector adjusts. I think it's an opportunity to have a look at the sector and to say, is, is the old system really delivering to a, for our community and is there a better way? Helen Evans there, the Director of Early Childhood Education at the United Workers' Union. She hopes to see a reassessment of childcare funding after the new rescue package is no longer needed. Lani Tyndale there, ending that report. You're listening to On The Money, where smart money listens right around Australia. With an ageing population, the first cohort of baby boomers are starting to enter the aged care system. The difficulty here is that the generation that needs to look after them is much smaller, and many Gen X people could be looking after a number of elderly people. When they need to go into either assisted living or higher care facilities, it's often in an emergency situation, and the arcane meshing of state health and federal aged care systems is often extremely difficult to navigate, and it often comes when you're emotionally upset. Dr. Joe Ann Epp is leading a research team at the Macquarie University Centre for the Health Economy, and this is into the process for entering the aged care system. I asked her to go through some of the difficulties that people are facing. We know that many older Australians are increasingly re- relying on residential aged care. The regulations have changed, um, making it making um, more choice for people entering residential aged care between paying a bond or paying a daily adjustable payment. So there's a lot of choices involved in getting into aged care. And uh, we're increasingly hearing things that um, make us concerned that it's too complex. You know, it's, it's hard for people to figure out how it's going to impact their taxes their pension, their wealth, you know, just making, making that decision. And often Older people um, have to go into aged care, you know, at short notice. So they could be under emotional stress, you know, and having to make this very big complex decision at that time could be, be quite stressful. So for, from what we know, um, there hasn't been any significant research done on this question of how complex it is and whether uh, people entering aged care and paying accommodation payments are making what we would say optimal decisions in terms of their, you know, expected income and wealth. So we want to investigate that more thoroughly. And I'd just like to underline uh, the point that you were making earlier in that 
often it happens when people are in distress. Uh, it's because they've got um, a parent or a close relative that has had a, um, a life-threatening event and they're unable to go home and then it's like the clock is ticking. You've just got over the health crisis but you're moving into another crisis, aren't you? Because you've got a couple of weeks, you've got a certain amount of rehab time, and then you have to make a decision as to where your loved one is going to go. And that requires a lot of financial decisions, which you may not be in the best position to make. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it, and we have an older population going into aged care, as you probably know, and a lot of people will be going there because of dementia so it's really complicated and often uh, families have to get involved and make uh, decisions on behalf of their loved ones so it is um, it's a really stressful time especially when there are siblings involved as well which is is often the case so we want to study this and then we want to find a solution because we think we could probably come up hopefully with some advice for the government to you know how to make it um less complex for people and where would they start? So we have to start with with the research and finding out what the problems are, kind of what impacts people's decisions. For instance, do they go to a financial planner, which the government recommends, but is there any evidence that the financial planner is helping people make better decisions? Well, financial planning, the financial planning industry was kind of devastated during the Royal Commission into Banking and Finance. So at the moment, it would be difficult to get the right person. And also, you mightn't have the confidence in the financial planning industry per se, might you? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, just thinking, oh, it's going to be expensive and I'm not sure I'm going to understand what's going on. You know, I, I just... You know, it's too much. So, so that's uh, you know something that we've included in the survey to find out you know what um, people's experience have been with financial planning around this decision, and how did they make the decision? You know, was it they just wanted to get a place that was close by? You know, and and that was the most important decision. So there's a lot of factors that go into this, and but at, at the end of the day, we're just focusing on people who are not fully government supported, people who are paying accommodation payments or the daily uh, adjustable payments, either or, or a combination, you know, to see how they made that, that decision. So it's, well, it's focused a, on them. A, a lot of the time, um, it's, it's a, an emotional decision in many ways because you want the best for your parent. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't want them left somewhere where they don't want to be left. Um, normally, uh, they often want to go home to, to be at home. But it, when you try and work out the um, costs of doing that and who is going to be available to help, it often is uh, just not possible at all to do that unless you're particularly well set up financially. And the hospital does help you find a nursing home. There's the social workers and so forth that do help you with that. But, of course, their objective is to find you somewhere now not to find you somewhere that's going to be good in the next couple of years, is it? And they don't have the financial skills to, to advise somebody around, you know, what's going to be, you know, the best financial decision for them. And, you know, and that's, um, that's where, you know, this survey is focused on. A lot of this, of course, is in a way foreseeable because at some point we're all going to need some help, generally speaking. And so we should know that something like this is going to happen to someone close to us. 
but we never seem to make any plans for it, probably. Uh, psychologically, there's a reason for that. But are you looking at some of the ways that people should be thinking about it and, and finding out that um, perhaps they're not? Well, that's, I mean, that's the aim of the survey is to see, you know, we, we know that, um, you know, there's, there's advantages of, of at certain income levels of paying um, an accommodation bond versus a daily adjustable payment. So we're going to, you know, try to model, you know, kind of what, what are optimal payments at different income levels. So that, that's quite complicated. But then, and then to sort of match what the reality was that people at those income levels, how did, how did they go? You know, did they, did they make an optimal decision, you know, from a wealth and financial point of view? Obviously, that's not the most important thing for everybody. It could be issues about convenience and, and the quality of the aged care place. But, but that's what we're aiming to measure is looking at all the government laws and regulations around um, the payment structure. We can come up with some idea of, you know, what, what would be optimal arrangement at certain income levels. And then, you know, to see how well that fares for the people that fill in our survey. And that will be really extremely helpful to know oh, you know, the people who use the financial planner, they ended up having optimal decisions. So that's something that we could we could see from, from our data. Um, so really... it, it sort of might show the path forward more easily than when you're in the uh, decision-making area at the time, it's often not very clear what is the path forward. Exactly, exactly. There's just lots of issues at stake, the family situation, the level of financial literacy, sort of financial habits, whether you're a risky investor or not, just your attitudes towards savings and money and, and just generally what you understand about your options. So it's, it is, you know, many factors involved. Dr. Joanne Epps, Senior Research Fellow at the Macquarie University Centre for the Health Economy, ending that story. Now, she'd be interested in your story for her research, so please do give her a call on 02-9850-1871 or email her at joanne.epp at mq.edu.au. And that's about all we have time for on On The Money this week. Tune in again next week to find out everything you need to know about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to our producer, Lani Tindale, this week. On the Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2 SER for the Community Radio Network and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find all of our shows and stories at 2SER.com slash on the money. Subscribe to our podcast. New of episodes are coming out every week. Follow us on Twitter, look for at OnTheMoney2SER and find us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. I'm Roderick Chambers. We're going to be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Stay safe and thanks for your company.